The global corporate training market will soon be reaching $400 billion. But what's it really like in the world of corporate training? What are the current trending training courses? And in practical terms, what would you say are the key skills for being a truly great trainer? To answer these questions on today's Learnability Show, we're talking to the Managing Director of Smart Coaching and Training, who sees the world of corporate training from three sides, the client, the trainer, and the organizer. He's also an expert on diversity, as well as an excellent professional networker. So can we please have a big round of applause for David Rigby. Welcome, David. Hello. It's nice to be in touch with you yet one more time. David, you are the Managing Director of Smart Coaching and Training. Is that correct? That is correct. Uh, could you give us a brief explanation about what smart coaching and training is? Because I get the feeling that it's not quite the same as a normal training company. I mean, basically, it's had a very long history and has been in different formats for many years. It's 25 years now since it was started under other name. Um, what it used to be was a vehicle for me and a few other people to get work in lots of different places. And what it is now, it's effectively a sort of agency because I work with 20 associates in four continents speaking 11 languages. And what I am generally doing is placing people in opportunities, which sometimes is placing me in opportunities. As managing director, do you do any training yourself? I do. I mean, my, my great policy now I live in Spain is not to go too far away. So if someone invites me into Europe, that's great. Mostly we get invited into the Middle East, which I've done, and I've done that, and I don't want to do it again. So I'd rather send other experts. You're you're really in, in a unique situation that you see corporate training from both sides of the coin. Is that Would you say that's fair? Well, at least three sides. Three sides? There's the side of the, the people who want the training. There's the people who are interested in delivering training. We also do coaching and speaking and consulting and lots of different things. And there's also the aspect of managing the whole thing. So that's three different things. When you say managing the whole thing, are you talking about managing the sales side of things or the keeping your 30 uh, associates happy? Or what is it that takes up most of your time? What takes most of my time is herding the sheep or herding the cats trying to get them all in the same place at the same time. For example, right now, I'm trying to finalize some training in Morocco, and we're going to do it in three different languages. So the challenge is about who, who pays for what and how, and how we do the flyers in three languages and everything else is interesting. But I think there is light at the end of the tunnel, which <laughs> takes a long time to get there. Is it more that, that companies come to you or do you go out there and, and, and dig up work for your, well, for your associates? Basically, as one of my associates, Balbir, has said, and she's the same, we lay out the stalls and hope to be found. On the other hand, you can encourage people to find you by having a good LinkedIn presence, having a website, sending out newsletters and commenting, usually very sarcastically, on social media. So it gets your name about. What would you say are the the secrets for getting noticed on social media? Be slightly controversial. And you know I do that extremely well. <laughs> I mean, basically, I do my best to send out newsletters every month. And I post them onto the website. I post variants on LinkedIn and Facebook and Instagram. I'm dithering with, but not very much with... Um, TikTok, I think it's just too complicated, but it's enough. And I could spend the entire day on the computer doing all this stuff. But I also have a personal policy of going out and meeting people. And I met a lot of people last year, and it's face-to-face, and all of them were in Spain and Portugal. I have observed at first hand that you're an excellent networker. Years of practice. I sat in on a meeting with an organization called Richmond Group, which I've been involved in for about 20 years. And 
the presenter, a woman called Carol Harris, I found her when I used to be chair of the Institute of Consulting. And I went to all the members and decided, these are the five people I want to meet, and she's one of them. And she was presenting on networking this week. And I said, yeah, remember, remember when I found you? Oh, yeah, that's it. And we're still speaking 20 years on. That is what's good about all this, keeping in touch with people. Does smart coaching and training specialise in any particular types of training? Or do you try to do, you know, the Amazon, we sell anything to anybody sort of deal? Well, the specialities we work to are diversity and inclusion, psychological safety, wellness at work, and variations on vertical and horizontal profiling. So that's about understanding yourself and how you might communicate with other people and also understanding yourself and how you are in life's uh, varied pathway because people change through the as they get older. Even me, I get changes as I get older. But certainly, those are the key things you work on. Nevertheless, I was talking to one of the organisers of a company who worked for quite a lot and trains in the Middle East. And I spoke to him last week and he said, the great thing about you is, yes, you can do all the standard stuff, but also you can find people to do the non-standard stuff because you have such a big network. And I thought, well, that's very nice. It's also very true. So when you, when you say the standard stuff, I'd assume that the standard stuff is, is what you've just mentioned, psychological safety, profiling, these sort of these, that's your, your bread and butter style training program. Well, it is. And then things like leadership and presentation skills and communication and lots of different variations on diversity, depending on which part of the world you're in at the time. That doesn't sound so interesting as, as what you referred to as the non-standard stuff. What's the, what are a few weird and wonderful things that you've been asked to give trainings on? Well, I mean, the two, two things come to mind is one, when we were asked to deliver training on the balanced scorecard, which is a sort of accounting technique, which I had to look up what it was because the last time I did it was 25 years ago but I had enough networks to get me all the material. Another interesting thing that I did personally was working in Madrid, helping a company to work out how to deal with their counterparts in Kuwait, which is a variation in helping those in Kuwait to deal with the Spanish. And we had the knowledge for all that. And what is really interesting, of course, about the Spanish, in Spain, most of the people who work in Spain are generally Spanish or they speak Spanish. Whereas in Kuwait, most people actually work are not Kuwaitis. They're going to be expats of all over the world. So you've got this dilemma insofar as you may, be having, you may have your staff, your representatives in the Middle East, in, in, say, in Kuwait, a good example. And I was, they were saying to me, well, is this not assertive enough? And I'm saying, well, he's on a contract. If he gets assertive, if he gets fired, what would you do? End of topic, really. But it's not what they wanted to hear, but it's absolutely the truth. Is this a small part of the bigger picture of diversity that you were referring to before? It's a small part of it. I mean, I think the thing about diversity is that there's a difference between diversity and inclusion, which I like to use as diversity is being asked to the dance. And inclusion is being asked to dance. And so many occasions, organisations tick the diversity boxes. And so you've got all the different people and you've got the women whose only job is to do with HR and you've got the LGBT people who are dealing with sensitive issues. Whereas if you want to get the best results, you need a completely diverse team with everybody included. And that doesn't mean recruiting 10 different people from 10 countries who all think the same as you. What you really need is the cognitive diversity and the ones that deal with worldview, which is about how people are more interested in doing the right thing, are they more interested in protecting their families, all sorts of different social attitudes, which do not come necessarily from where they are, which country they're in. The million-dollar question for me on all of this is... 
it's one thing to explain to people why it's of benefit ethically, financially, morally, whatever, to change diversity or change your attitudes to equality of the sexes or whatever. But it's a completely different thing to get them to actually put that into practice. Where would you say you're on the line as just giving them information and then making sure that they carry it through and so that in a year's time you can say, yes, this has made a difference? I attend various conferences and I remember sitting in one last year where someone said, admittedly, it's the Middle East, but they're saying in 10 years' time, we hope to have 50% of women on the board. 10 years. And I just told them not to be so stupid. What's your, why, your, why isn't your target in six months? Just get on with it and do it. And it's the same with most of it, really. People are just not ambitious enough, and they think just because we've done we've got a woman and we've got the token, this, that, and the other there, we're being diverse, and they're absolutely not. And so I'm afraid I'd lay into them. So, so that's how I, how I am. I'd lay into them and say, just get on with it and do it. Now, within, within, uh, within smart coaching and training, we've got all ages, all sexes, all sexualities, and all sorts of countries. I'm still worried that I'm still recruiting people like me, but I'm aware of it. And I like to be challenged. And I have to be diplomatic when I'm working with different people. But I've, I can do it if I really try hard. But in reality, you get far better results by not doing so. I was reading a, an article today about what the, the publishing company, I can't remember the name of the publishing company, but the publishing company that's, that has the rights to the Roald Dahl books and that they have re... Well, they've tweaked the original manuscripts now that, that when they reprint Roald Dahl books, they've actually changed certain words. For instance, they've taken the word fat out and used the word enormous. They've taken the word ugly out and changed it to the word horrible or beastly or something like this. And I thought, well, that's, that's interesting that we've reached that that point where we look at something that was written just as a kid's book 20, 30 years ago, and now today it's considered unacceptable. Now, I don't know whether that has happened because somebody's come along and said, you have to be more diverse or less fattest or less less ugliest or whatever the expression is and I'm, I'm probably putting my foot in it here my, myself but part of me thinks that this is just something which is happening naturally I, i'm sure there's some listeners with their putting their hands on their heads and say oh, don't be ridiculous but is there a natural process where it, it does trickle down and attitudes do change across the years anyway the example i gave yesterday to my friend was the use of less and fewer which is totally changed the subject but it's the point is that eventually words change their meaning whereas the grammar police would jump on you if you said less people and now you see it on websites i still i still jump on down because there should be fewer people and with all the other words, in reality, with the uh, the Americans banning all these, all the best books they've ever had, if you change a few words that enables you to sell a lot more copies, then maybe you would. And it's not the moral stance, it's the financial stance. You said that your uh, associates, about 30, are a, a diverse bunch. Yeah. Are these people that have been filled to or that you've that you've taken on to to fill slots or what what is it that for you makes that decision of yes this person could be an associate or this person couldn't okay well i work on lots of types of diversity well there's one line of diversity which is the boring to interesting line and if at the boring end 
and not having them. They've got to be able to spar with me and everybody else. That's one of the key factors. They've also got to be able to work with each other. So, for example, I know we have um, one of my services, Jessica, in, in Dubai, and she's been working with Martin, who's also in Dubai. And he's introduced her to people. I know also Martin's helped one of my other you know, the guys, Eric, both apply for the same job in Abu Dhabi, and Eric's in Birmingham. So it's, you know, lots, lots of different training. And what I want is I want it to run like a family where we help each other and support each other. And, you know, Ian, when we get training opportunities, we swap all the material. So it's not my material. It's not your material. It's our material when it, when it applies. So I'm much faster than anybody else. I've actually written courses for other people to deliver. God help them. <laughs> but still, they have, but it's a kicking off point. So we're working as a team rather than a bunch of individuals. So I gather that what you're saying is that the the training that companies can get through smart coaching and training is a fairly diverse and eclectic affair. It's not that you have a particular methodology or a particular field of specialization. We have those five things we talked about earlier on. We market things which are called, what do we call them? Signature Signature corporate training, that's called. And those are called, those are courses which last about five days. And they're basically generic versions of things we've done. And it therefore illustrates capacity. We're also building up a lot of short courses for an hour. Or we've got online courses. We've got short courses lasting an hour or two or two days. And again, for all of those things, we market them using specific examples of associates, but it could be almost anybody can do it. So whilst we have a degree of specialization, we have enough people to substitute. For example, one of them recently lost his passport. So he couldn't go from Dubai to Riyadh because he's German without his passport. So within two hours, I had three other people who could do this. But he's such a star that the client said, we'll wait till he's got his passport. And then we can, when he's able to come, then we'll run it then. And that's winning all around, really. You mentioned the business of doing online training and face-to-face. I mean, the fact that the smart coaching and training survived COVID with the lockdown is great credit to you. Would you say that there's a tendency to go back to face-to-face training? Or is online training here to stay? I think it depends. There's no doubt about it that on that face-to-face training is much more effective because you can see the people in the room and you can get them to do stuff, like talk to each other. Whereas certainly if I'm running things online, going in and out of uh, groups and back out again causes me no amount of technical confusion. And the only way I can do it is, is get the team to work with me and support me when we all laugh when I get it wrong again. Mind you, that's me. Uh, others are far more effective. We have at least one who can jump in and out of uh, breakout groups every 30 seconds. It's nevertheless, face-to-face is the way I much prefer, but I'm not going, I'm not going to travel to do it unless it's local-ish. Local-ish means all of Western Europe. That's not where the clients are, but they will be because I'm getting to meet people. So I spend a lot of time finding new people. Even in lockdown, I was adding 30 new people a month to my mailing list without even leaving the house because I'm talking to people all the time and they're everywhere. When you're talking about your clients then, a a lot of your clients are from the Arab countries. Currently, yeah, they are. And the main reason for that is I was there for seven years. So that's where the network is. It's not that the Arabs are desperate for being trained up in in stuff then. Well, they are. I mean, the Arabs do a lot more training than most of Europe does. And they fortunately prefer to have European people teaching them than Arabs. Although we can teach in Arabic, and I've certainly done some training in, in Dubai where I did it in English, and I worked with a simultaneous translator, so it was all in Arabic. 
and the material was so terrible. And it was all about teaching 10 Emirati women how to do coaching. And I decided that I can do this better without all the material. So I just did it by improvisation for three days. And I tell lots of stories. And the story after that one is at the end of the course, they said to me, well, can you sing to us in Spanish, please? So I did. I bet no one else has ever done that with simultaneous translation, but it was still a good experience. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a fairly fair bet. Yeah, I, I agree with that. So it is, is being able to sing in Spanish uh, an important requisite for being a successful trainer with Arabs? No, being able to sing is because it's part of... Uh, I mean, one of the things I have done over the last 10 years, I used to be really, really shy, is done a lot of self-improvement. So I've taken singing lessons. I learned to sing in a band. I now have a friend here in, or I live in Altair, who I've taught to sing in English because uh, he's from Argentina. And I go and sing with him in restaurants. The last time I did it was last week. And what it does, it continuously improves your presentation skills. I also learned, I used to host a radio show. I attended training in stand-up comedy. I've done training with one of my associates in how to be a clown, all of which improve the whole thing about converting training into entertainment, which is what you particularly need to be able to do if you're working in the Middle East. Where would you put the balance then between training and entertainment? Is, is that a scale or are they both on the same side of the scale? It's a line. I mean, in reality, what you should be doing in training is working out what the trainees should be able to do at the end of their training session. And hopefully we're on the same list of things. So it's using whatever means you've got at your disposal to help them get there. And particularly if you're working with Arabs, they typically speak really well English. I'll start again. I don't even speak really well English. They speak English really well. And um, well, they can't write it and they can't read it. So giving them an exercise to do, which is read all this and say stuff, they can't do it. So you have to read things out to them. So to keep the concentration, make it as joyful as possible. Get them in, get them involved, make all the jokes, get, get them participating. Participation is absolutely crucial. I remember the first time I did a presentation on NLP and emotional intelligence, which was for the board of the Institute of Directors. I was petrified of it because I never taught this at all. I used to do technical stuff. And the first thing you do, first thing I did, was went straight into the audience and said, who knows what NLP is? And fortunately, somebody did. It's a highly risk approach. It's passing the control to the participants. And once you've learned how to do that, you're on your way. And it's the same thing with how much material you have. Uh, when I'd done my stand-up comedy training, I did an hour's worth of uh, opening a conference for a, a network marketing company. And I spoke for an hour and I used four slides in an hour. One of them was to, ex to explain about cognitive diversity. And the last one, because this, this is about sales, at that time, Adele had this big hit called Hello. Hello, it's me. Hello, it's me. The perfect song for cold calling. So my entire ambition for that day was I wrote a new set of lyrics for it and I got 200 people to sing them. And they remembered that and I remember that. And they will remember all the rest of it because you're engaging everybody. So being able to adapt uh, Adele songs is uh, a key skill for being a great trainer then. I thought it might be. I, I had suspected that for a while now. So you've got the, the business of, first of all, being able to keep your your audience entertained as well as knowing about the subject. 
and also the business of keeping your audiences the focus and keeping them engaged. Have you ever had any other feedback from clients that have come back to you and said, that was really great, and the reason was because... Yes, yes, insofar as I get asked back again to do it again. So, I mean, that's a good point. I mean, there are also the skills of improvisation, certainly working on the radio when you, you had to be on the ball all the time and it was live and if things went wrong, you got to deal with it. Uh, there was an occasion when I was in, again, Kuwait and we had won the bid to teach these Kuwaitis the wonderful world of change management strategy. And all the training, everything we're asked to do was about the strategy to how to run change management. And I get in there and I've got 10 Arabs and I say, what do you think this course is on? And they say, oh, it's the strategy for changing the management. Totally different topic. So I did three days worth of improv on that. Most people would have run away. But I knew enough about it. (laughs) When you say that you know enough about it, One of my cornerstones of of belief, as far as training goes, is that giving people new ideas is not as important as getting them to be able to, to shift on the ideas that they already have. You know, the, the business, if we went back to diversity, I think if you asked people about what diversity is, most people would have a pretty good idea. Maybe not perfect, but they'd be able to answer the question. Whereas, do they actually put this into effect? Is it part of their normal behaviour? And they would probably say, no, it isn't. And so it's, it's, for me, a large part of training is getting people to put into effect and apply the stuff that, they've probably got a pretty good idea about already. The thing about diversity and inclusion is over and over again, it is proved that the the way to increase your profits is to have a a diverse and inclusive team. And if you continue to employ people exactly like you who who are male, pale and stale, you're on your way to oblivion. I'm raising my eyebrows here. The, the audience can't see that. But I'm raised, I've never been described as male, pale and stale before. Does it fit? I don't know. You, <laughs> what do you think? Well, you... Male, yes. Pale, okay. Certainly, stale. certainly February. Mm. Yeah. Yes, yes. Okay. I get this from my, right. from my Chinese counterparts. They use that, that expression a lot, male, pale and stale. Do they? Um not, not the arrows, but the Chinese do. And um, it's the way it used to be. And if you don't shift, then you'll be out of work. That's a fairly blunt message to yes, but no, but we've all got inbuilt in in built prejudices and balances, and we always like the things we know. The number of people who like what they eat, what they like, and like what they eat, because it's the same thing. Because it's, there's, they never try anything new, and it's the same with life. Go do something different. You'd be surprised what happens. It's time for our learnability quiz. Three questions to, to demonstrate your expertise on your subject. And your subject is smart coaching and training. So... Are you ready? First question for 10 points. SMART. What does the acronym SMART actually stand for? S is... T is timely. M is... Measurable. Very good. That's two out of five. S is... It's not sustainable, is it? It's not... No... Could, be, could be, could, might. If we got, if we, if, if we got, if we got into modern technology, um, it's not for smart. It's not smart either. No, it's not. I'm going to have to, to ask you to be more specific. Oh, is it right? How about specific then? 
Excellent. That's three out of five. S M T. So A and R. Um, can't remember. Go on. I'll give up. You get five out of ten points for that. A and R. R is realistic, and A is, or they say R is realistic, and they say A is attainable. But actually, I think they're they're more or less the same thing. And then there are other people that, that give lots of others. But anyway, yes, smart, specific, specific, measurable, attainable, realistic, and timely. I just do it automatically. So therefore, I don't need to think about it. Coaching. Second question. Coaching. On the theme of yeah. coaching. What does COA, what does coaching stand for? Yes, right. Go on. No. In this case, there is a very famous... when. when, when when coaching suddenly became very popular, there was a very famous and short book called The Inner Game of Tennis, which was all about how improving your tennis skills is more of a mental process rather than a physical process. Do you know who wrote that book? No. So I've answered the question. I don't know. Yes. So you, you got you got the correct answer. You do not know who, who wrote that book. It was actually by Very Timothy good. Galway, the famous Timothy Galway there, right? And the third question then, third question for another 10 points if you can get this. Of the following four subjects that are often asked for in company training programs, which of them is not usually in the top of the list? Which of the following is not commonly in demand for company training programs number one stress management number two project management number three leadership or number four negotiation it's got to be stress management for 10 points you correct indeed the others project management leadership negotiations are in the the top four if not the top five of any list that i managed to find Whereas stress management is usually, although I'd say stress management is very important, it usually is in around the 10th or 12th position. So congratulations. Not bad. I think that's uh, 20 points that you've got there in total. I learned. See, this is my learning skill. I I learned something. (laughs) (laughs) Now, while we're talking about uh, learning then, before our learnability quiz, we were talking about what makes a good trainer a good trainer and what makes them a bad trainer. Um, Have you ever been in a situation yourself where you've realised that you're absolutely doing a terrible job? I think I want to give a slightly different example. Whereas I was invited to sit in on some training in Dubai given by Indians to Indians. And the first thing the trainer said was, I don't want any questions. You're here to listen to me. And I just sat there horrified because I just don't work like that. And one thing I'm conscious of is many, many times there's a preference for the attendees to want a recipe, they want a tick box, they want a list, do these things and it'll all happen. And I also won't do that because I want people to know why they're doing it, not what it is. And there's been times when the feedback has been, well, we don't know how to do this. And I said, well, because there's so many different ways you can do it and there isn't the right answer. There's many right answers. I think I was doing my five-day training course on how to run a meeting, which meant running a meeting was absolutely the smallest possible thing you could talk about was included. And it was all debate, a whole damn thing's debate. What, why are you inviting this person? What, is the sub, what do you want people to do having been to the meeting? All of these different things. And it's all different every single time. So there isn't a recipe. There's lots of things you think about and then decide. And the audience wanted a recipe. So that's a a good example of sort of failing in practice, but not in principle. So I do agree that 
the experience that you shared when the the trainer says don't ask questions um I, i've i've been in similar cases where the the tr this this is true i was on the receiving end of this i was once in a training program where if you asked a question the trainer more or less tried to humiliate you in front of the group and that if you didn't understand something he he, he visually got annoyed and it, it was a bother to him that you, that you hadn't understood it the mm. first time uh which which i found you know it, it, having a, a group of of 30 people sat there almost terrified to ask something because otherwise they're going to get singled out and ridiculed or attacked for a trainer who is charging a professional rate, I think is shocking. So what happened to him? Did he get lots of work again? Did he continue to get work? I've a feeling that, that he does continue to get work. I'm not I'm not gonna say who it is, but I I know that, that they continue to work as, as a professional trainer. But mm. I, I definitely don't agree with his methods and I would say that the amount that his his audience learns is questionable mm. because I think his his audience just are, are sitting there shutting up, just waiting to him to get through it so they can get their certificate of attendance, which mm. was important to me. Yeah. Whereas some people go to trainings just because they have to. I've been to some bloody awful ones, to be honest. We in in my company, we are obliged to give a health and safety training. We have a professional who comes in and gives a health and safety training. And it is frankly awful. It is mind-numbingly boring. She just goes through a list of of sheets, uh, PowerPoint presentations. This is what you have to do. This is what, no, somebody has their arm chopped off. This is what you got to do. If somebody falls down the stairs, this is what you got to do. If somebody gets hit by a breeze block, then this is what you got to do. And it's, I, I don't doubt for a moment that the content is important, but the delivery is mind-numbingly insulting. And, and I have to invent excuses to be able to leave the room because I just can't cope with it anymore. After three hours of sitting through something like that, you your brain just stops working. I have been twice now to... Um the British police training on how to avoid getting speeding tickets. That's interesting. <laughs> and I learned, oh, I can actually go faster in this area than I thought I could. And that's the only thing I remembered about it, that I was actually going slower than I, than I could be in some particular circumstances. You can't open that without, without letting us know then. How do you not get a speeding ticket? It, no, it was. It wasn't. It was the fact that I think it's something like on certain kinds of dual carriageways, you can go at sixty miles an hour if got, if it's got street lighting, but only fifty if it doesn't, or something really weird like that, which I never knew. Aha! Like, huh, I can go faster than down this road, and I thought I could, and still be legal. Isn't it? You, you just can't go faster than what the signpost says you can go at. No, well, if there's no signpost, you're supposed to know this because it's in the highway code uh, about uh, lighting and not lighting and all the rest of it. Whereas when I was in the Middle East and the speed limit there, it's in kilometres per hour on the way from Abu Dhabi to the desert where I was working, it was two lanes wide at that point, either way. And on the right-hand side were all these trucks going fairly slowly and on the left were all these whiskers and the Maseratis going very fast. And you had to get you had to keep switching one to the other. And there were speed cameras. And it was typically in the dark and you never knew where they were. So I got no end of tickets. So I knew the limit was 140. And at that point, if you didn't go more than 160, you didn't get get flashed i knew that much so the optimum speed is 155 let's let's get back onto the subject of training i want to i want to bring something else in about training um i got brought into one of the universities in dubai i think it was called middlesex university 
to deal with employability of technical people and what do they have to, what skills do they have to have in order to get a job and the answer was and still is working in a team and being able to present stuff doesn't matter what you know technically it's irrelevant if you haven't got these skills you can't get a job so I worked, the way I worked was I think I had about 50 people and I got them in teams of five and I said, right, the, you five have to give a presentation of five minutes on condition that A, all you have to speak and B, it has to be in English and for none of you, that's your, your native tongue. And they all sat there horrified. And then I said, okay, so what you do? When you're giving a presentation, as you know, Ian, you tell them what you've got to tell them, you tell them, and you tell them what you told them. That's three people. And most audiences can't remember more than three things. So that's three things in the middle, at the front and the back, and that's five people. And that's how they did a presentation. And I got them all to mark each other. So we got a winner. And the university said, how the hell did I should do that then? Because they all passed and they were all great and they learnt. That's experience. That's the joy of doing training. Whatever question that was answering, it wasn't. <laughs> what my question was going to be is that from, from the point of view of the person that coordinates with the company, what advice could you give them that would help them make sure that they got what they needed? Well, you said it really well then. It's get what they needed and not what they thought they wanted. And what often happens is uh, you get given a sort of outline of the training to deliver, which is what they think they want. And you sort of come to the point where this is what they actually need, which is slightly different. And so you, you run that sort of very thin line between if someone says, have you actually done what it says on the outline? Then the answer is yes. And have you also done what they actually need? And that's a different, totally different thing. And you've done that as well. So it's, a, it's that balance between the two. Because they won't know. The person who's employing you to do the training will not know what they need. And more to the point, most of the participants have different needs in any case. So it's only when you get to know them that you're able to deliver the right thing. And that's where developing endless PowerPoints before you turn up and deliver it is a big risk because you've no idea what the audience knows. So you need to be flexible. You need to be able to focus on these bits and not those bits and drop things and spend time talking to people. And that's the way it is. I'm pleased to hear you say the business that different people in the same training have different needs. Because um, I, I would argue that, that if you've got 10 people in a training, all 10 of them have got slightly different needs, different responsibilities, different skill sets, etc. Do you have any tricks up your sleeve that you've learned in your years as presenter or stand-up comedian or singer that have helped you in these situations? One of the key issues is getting people off their phones. And no amount of telling people that if I'm talking to you, first of all, my phone shouldn't be on. And secondly, if it is, it shouldn't ring. If it does, I shouldn't look at it. But any of those things tell you, the person I'm talking to, that anybody is more interesting than you. So we start on that message. Then we have the other one to do with in the Middle East. Uh, I ran a, tr a course on listening skills, and I said to these guys, who do you listen to most? And the answer was mother. Every one of them, mother. And the trouble is with that kind of culture is this mother rings. If you don't answer in five seconds, she thinks you're dead. So for this listening skills course, I got them all to turn the phones onto silent. 
was only a day's course. It wasn't too long. And about halfway through the afternoon, I could hear all this tapping going on. I said, who are you talking to? And the answer was, mother, every one of them, mother, every single one. So that's one of the things you learn. This is a, doesn't happen in, in the UK, it happens there. It's mother. The other thing you have to learn is about, um, I had one, one case in Oman where one of the delegates said, I can't turn my phone off because I've got an important client I'm expecting to call. So I said, and this is a, a course, and we're dealing with customer service. So, okay. I said, what you can do then is if your customer calls, you can take the call in the room and we'll all shut up and we'll all listen to it and we'll all give you feedback. We only did that once. No one else dared do it again. So it's just embarrassing folk into turning the phones off. Stop looking at your phone. All the rest of it. That's one of the key issues is people with phones. And it's cultural. It depends where you are. So that's something that annoys you then, presumably, that, that your audience is spending more time on their phones than they should be. It's just a game. I mean, as long as you treat it as a game and you win, if you win most of it, most of the time, that's about the best you can get. What, what about the other, the flip side? What's the best? What do you really enjoy about training? I enjoy the conversations and the dialogues and, and, re- and realising that people have actually learned something and they can do something that they couldn't do before and seeing it happen. You can see it happen in the room. You can see it sometimes in conversations, in the coffee breaks and the tea breaks. They'll talk to you and say, oh, I didn't know that. I'm going to do this this way in the future. Now, it doesn't often happen that you get follow-up because of the nature of the way they do the work. It's all contracted. So you're not dealing with all the people all the time. Although you may get the same people contact you independently later on and they say, oh, we're doing this now, or can you come back and do something different? And that's very rewarding. And I certainly, not not necessarily in training, but in coaching, I have kept up with people for years, 30 years. I know what we're doing now, and I trained them 30 years ago. And you've helped people along the way, and that's great. One of the things that I realised long ago, you know, when I started to be a, a teacher, back in <laughs> when I used to live in the UK 40 years ago. Last last century. Yeah. The last century, that's right. One, one thing that struck me is that as a teacher or a trainer, you have a lot of experience as far as audiences goes. You, you meet lots of different types of students, lots of different types of people that are learning. But you actually get very little experience of how other teachers or how other trainers work. Do you get to experience much about how other trainers do their jobs? I mean, you said that you you got to sit in once on another trainer. Is it is it something that you get regular experience about, or is it does it happen very rarely? Well, I'm going to again slightly shift the topic and say last November. I went to the Professional Speakers Association face-to-face meeting with 16 presenters, including me. And fortunately or not fortunately, I was on almost first. So I couldn't use the benefits of hindsight. On the other hand, I watched the other 15 and I learned from all of them lots of different things all day. And I got to know them. So I can phone them up and say, what about this then? Or tell me about that. Give me advice. And you know, Ian, I'm not shy of asking you for advice. That is true. That is true. And it's good. And it's good advice, I might point out as well. So, yeah. In fact, I I think one of the things that we can all do as far as learning goes is to lose our inhibitions as far as asking people for help goes. I think we would all be better off if if we could just simply get on the phone or lean over to the next cubicle and say, look, I'm struggling with this. Could you give me a few ideas? It requires courage. It, it's I can remember once, again, in the back of a car from Abu Dhabi, arguing the toss with the Egyptian about, 
it's a strength to be confident enough to ask for help. And it's not in their psyche, not at all. But by the time I'd finished, he asked me for help. And as a coach, of course, you don't tell people what to do. You enable them to work it out for themselves. And that's another skill. If anybody wanted to find out more information about smart coaching and training or about yourself, where would you recommend that they go to? They can go to the website, which is www.smartcoachingtraining.com. Or you can send me an email to David R at smartcoachingtraining.com. So there's no and in that. It's just smart coaching training. But the company's called Smart Coaching and Training. We'll put those links in the in the show notes for you. So finally, all the experience that you've had in herding cats, as you said, stand-up comedy singing in front of audiences and and running your business is that one thing that you could share which is the most useful lesson that our listener can take away from this take a lot more risks and be very confident about doing it excellent words david it's been a pleasure thank you very much for your time i wish you all the best of luck in continuing to herd your cats and I look forward to all the wonderful courses that you're going to pull out of the Middle East. And the rest of the world. And the rest of the world, indeed. Okay. Absolutely. Thank you very much, Ian. It's been great fun, as I knew it would be. <laughs>